BJ Council. I view the world through the lens of having been followed by a white clerk as a child while shopping in a five and dime. I'm a retired police executive and own UN50, which gives guidance on surviving interactions with police. I'm Harmony Chavis, and I view the world through the lens of one of the most misunderstood and diverse generations in our nation's history. I'm a social worker and a believer of radical kindness and love as modalities of healing. My name is Andrew Council. I view the world through the lens of a generational camera phone. I wake up as a black male and go to bed as a black male. I am surviving this never-ending court case we commonly call life in the best way I know how. All right, thanks everybody for joining um, UN50 again. For those of you that join us on a regular, thank you so much, I appreciate that. And for those of you that may be joining us for the first time, it's UN50. And my name is BJ Council. Uh, I am out of Durham, North Carolina, or the Bull City. And UN50 is an organization that goes around and teaches individuals how to safely interact with law enforcement. We've been doing this since about 2015. And we've had the podcast for a couple of years now, and we kind of talk about a lot of stuff, not just law enforcement, because we believe this issue is larger than law enforcement. And we talk on um, about mental health, uh, justice served persons, uh, youth, and all of that, you know, that, and so and we try to tie it back into law enforcement. So welcome for those of you, again, who may be joining us for the first time. Uh, tonight, uh, we have uh, an individual that I've met through a past guest, uh, Seth Stoughton, uh, who is the co-founder for POLIS, P-O-L-I-S Solutions. And if you go to my website, you will see that I, uh, my little small business is endorsing this organization because of what I believe is what's needed in, in policing in this moment. Uh, they had, uh, I found out about them through knowing Seth and, and some of his colleagues, but what attracted me to it was one of their trainings is called T3, Tact, Tactics and Trust. Trust obviously had me looking at it, but what also really brought me into it and being a black female and doing this work for the last seven years, one of the things that consistently comes up in the conversation when I do these workshops is individuals don't feel respected. And Polar Solution, is, is, that is a core thing that they are trying to, or they are doing in training officers to restore that and make sure people, no matter the interaction, leave with their dignity and respect. And so uh, I'm just so excited to have Dr. Jonathan Wonder, uh, I think I'm hopefully pronouncing that correct, as a co-founder. And we're just gonna be talking about Polar Solution and why uh, they created that. So Doc, Jonathan, whatever you want me to call you, Welcome. Thank you for saying yes. Thank you, BJ. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to have this dialogue with you uh, and your audience. And yeah, Jonathan, you know from our prior conversations, first thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. and, uh, I know. I'm um, looking forward to a great dialogue with you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I am too. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, I, I also need to put a plug in that hopefully that I do work down in Kinston, and I'm really hoping that they're going to be able to bring uh, Polar Solution down there being kind of a uh, cutting edge on doing something different. And just as another thing that I, reason I really believe in what they're doing, have not been to or seen one of the workshops, but the philosophy I'm, I'm definitely engrossed in uh, is the fact that I'm retired law enforcement and BLET, for those of you that may not know, is basic law enforcement training. And it has not changed since I went. And I went back in the early 80s. <laughs> And so that should tell you something about how we have got to involve in polis and, and my little humble opinion is doing that. So uh, Jonathan, if you will, just go ahead and tell the folks about polis and why. And, and, uh, and so I don't forget, I wanna, you and I have talked before, you did a quote and I keep missing it or messing it up from one of your professors about where police, where, where people hurt most. And I want to make sure I get that quote co correct from one of your professors yes. because I really yes. love that quote. I really love that. So just go ahead, Jonathan, and tell folks about your organization. Sure. So VJ, as, as you know, I've, I've got an unusual combined background in policing in the academic world. Uh, I served for 20 years in the Seattle area, primarily working patrol gangs. And as a sergeant, I uh, went back to school. I got a PhD uh, in a number of different social sciences. And my area of passion is 
human interactions where risk is high and trust is low. Uh, I co-founded Polar Solutions in 2014 with my business partner, Brian Landy, with the mission of integrating cutting edge science and moral ambition around the goal of improving safety and trust in communities around the country. Uh, by taking what we know about human interaction, by taking what we know about how to train and educate people, by taking what we know about trust and packaging that up in scalable, sustainable ways. So really everything that we do at Polis comes down to the idea that trust is safety and safety is trust. In any human relationship, whether it's a parent and child, whether it's a married couple or your neighbors or police in the community, when trust is strong in a relationship, it can withstand the inevitable reality of conflict. When trust is weak, everything else becomes impossible. So what we try to do more than anything else is think about how to create what we call a positive ripple effect in every human interaction that police officers have with the communities they have volunteered and sworn to serve. And when I say a ripple effect, you know, you and I have spoken before, and I'm here tonight because you trust me enough to share some of my ideas with your audience. And I appreciate that trust you placed in me. Your audience doesn't know me. They don't know who Jonathan Wender is. And after people listen to this podcast, their opinion of me is either going to be better or it's going to be worse, but it's not going to return to some zero point. And what I say and do this evening also impacts you. If I do a good job, people are going to say, oh, BJ, you know, she scored away. She picked a good guy to be on there. But if I fall flat, if I say things that are wrong or evil, people are going to say, where'd she come up with this guy? <laughs> so so my the ripple effect influences not just me and my reputation, it impacts you and your reputation. Yeah. So I have a responsibility. Uh, and we, you and I both have responsibilities uh, as ambassadors for law enforcement. Uh, and as ambassadors from all the communities to which we belong. Uh, so Polis works primarily with the federal government. We work with municipalities of all sizes. And our mission is to help police departments get off what I call the reform merry-go-round. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you, you came into the law enforcement profession in the early 80s. I came in uh, 1990. And uh, like you, I'm, I'm so tired and heartbroken by the merry-go-round where every five years predictably, we have one of these high controversy, high profile confrontations, uh, disproportionately involves police and a young black man. Yeah. And after these incidents occur, we go through this spasm of reform. But I'm not going to pull my punches. A lot of what looks like reform gets called reform is theatrics. It's window dressing. Yeah. And we never really think about what we could do to improve the quality of policing long-term, especially, especially in our communities where the police go most. So back to the quote you're mentioning, uh, one of my, probably my favorite uh, scholar of policing is a sociologist named Egan Bittner, B-I-T-T-N-E-R. Bittner came to the United States uh, as a refugee from Europe uh, after World War II. And uh, he's one of the most insightful scholars of policing in the US, if not the world. And he talked about the, the inherent moral tension in the police. Um, and the, the police, because of what they're, they're asked to do by society, uh, which is resolve situations, sometimes using what he calls non-negotiable coercive force. The police go into situations where people are unable to resolve a crisis using their own resources or using yeah. the community resources at their disposal. So they call 911, they call the cops, and we show up. And the, the problem with policing, you know, number one, uh, policing is seen as morally suspicious, right? The fact that the police sometimes use force, use violence to keep the peace troubles people, right. as it should, right? We live in a world yeah. where we don't like violence. Right. And when the police use violence to solve a problem, we cringe, even when it's necessary. The second problem Bittner pointed to is that the police impose what are called peremptory solutions. And that basically means somebody wins and somebody loses. And even if it's something as simple as, hey, the neighbor's music is too loud. We, we as officers, we come in and we often, we craft solutions where someone's gonna walk away with the short end of the stick. And third, and third, this is the quote you remembered. Bittner said, in so many words, the police touch society where it already hurts the most. Yes. Right? 
People yeah. don't call 911 because they're happy. And so we, yes. like a doctor, right? Now we, we do well checkups in, in the medical world, but the reality is our police officers are overwhelmingly going to our most disadvantaged, disenfranchised, marginalized neighborhoods. And disproportionately, that means neighborhoods where a lot of people of color live or recent immigrants or people who are on the margins for any one of a host of reasons, mental illness, addiction, domestic violence, human trafficking, sex trade, legacies of inequality and oppression, and so on and so on and so on. Right. So when you spend your days and nights working with people who already hurt physically, emotionally, financially, spiritually, you have to handle people delicately, but also in a manner that upholds everybody's safety. And that's why policing is such an easy job, right? <laughs> <laughs> <It's>, uh, yep. <laughs> well, you, I'm going I'm to come up for air because you know, you know, Paul. Yeah, I know. You, I, I love it. You know, I'm sitting here going, this, this is exactly right. And uh, that quote just said, I love it. And, and it just says everything because you're right. We, we enter these spaces and people are just at, at pain. And I don't really think people who are, who, I mean, I don't have anything against people protesting. I mean, do do everything you got to do. I mean, this is my, I guess this is kind of my little form of protesting is making sure everybody survived the interaction after you protest, you know? So, um, but just understanding, you know, people's journey. I mean, a lot of people that I, and I know you, you know this because you talk about, you know, we go through these cycles and, you know, you, but you want to ask some folks, do you really know what that individual is going through? Do you really know? And you got to really figure out how, how we need to handle that. So, you know, just to kind of go back to when I was talking about earlier, what what is it that makes you guys different? Okay, BLET. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, go ahead with that. I mean, it. Uh, go ahead with that. That just BLET. Why why is it that? Okay, let me. My two cents. Why is it that law enforcement has a hard time allowing academia in? Because you actually started out science and human interaction. Why would I not want to know as a leader of law enforcement industry to go, okay, folks, you got to study this for a living. Could you help us figure out how we need to interact with humans? Why is it that law enforcement has just been so, this is the way we're going to do it, and we're not changing? Clearly, we have not changed. What is that about? Time, money. <laughs> politics, culture. I'll say it again. Time, money, politics, and culture. Um, you know, but I, and you know, BJ, I think you'll agree with me. You, if you think where the law enforcement world was when you started back in the early 80s, I think about where it was when I started in 1990. It's better. It was better when we started than it was in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. And it's better today than it was when I started and you started generation. I think it's important to remember that yes. whatever the failures yeah. Whatever the limitations, we have to remember that, you know, looking at nationally, use of force occurs in about one to three percent of police community interactions. Mm -hmm. So what that means is 97 to 99 percent of the time, there's no force. Both the community member and the officer do something right. And we need to understand that. So mm -hmm. when we look at training in policing, I, I think that, you know, there are lots of reasons, but just to unpack some of this a little bit, police training and education uh, for generations has been a, a bare bones process, right? When you think my, my academy training in, in the state of Washington was 440 hours, it's now 960. Wow. Uh, but the, the process of selecting, hiring and training officers is very expensive. And uh, sadly, there's this constant tension between what we know in the academic world, what we know in the training world about how to train and educate adults and what police departments are willing and able to pay for. And same with communities. And I'll tell you, to start touching some of the hot button issues here, uh, there are kind of two narratives around policing in America. And one narrative says, well, the, the police work for the 1%. The police are there reinforcing systems of inequality right. and oppression. Yeah. Well, the flip side of the coin is that the most basic human right is safety. And just because you are poor or a member of a historically marginalized, marginalized group doesn't mean you deserve any less safety than the affluent person. So what I'm here to say is policing is far from perfect. There's a lot of room to improve policing, just as there is room to improve healthcare and education, <laughs> public transportation and nutrition, and on and on and on. But 
you, you will find the best police departments are in those communities where we often have the best schools, mm. the best public health care. So if you want to find the, the well-trained, well-paid boutique police departments, disproportionately, those are departments serving affluent white communities. And so uh, anyway, another one of my favorite lines is that rich people make policy and poor people live it. So yeah, we've got to think long and hard in the current debate about policing. How do we have an intelligent, focused, honest dialogue about the limitations and failings of policing without vilifying the profession and without pulling away a resource that every community needs and deserves, especially our poorest communities that don't have resources to solve a lot of problems that are facing more crime and other kinds of issues in our affluent communities. Well, that kind of gets back down to people being involved civically, you know, does yeah. it not? I mean, that's the kind of conversation that, that people have to be, I mean, yeah, protests, I, mean, I keep saying that, but the thing is you're gonna eventually have to go inside the building and talk about some budget. And you're gonna have to understand what that looks like. And that if you want this type, as you say, for an, an affluent kind of police department, bougie police department, then you guys are gonna have to pay for that. You know, and that yeah. mainly means training. I mean, cause right now everybody's everybody's paying a popo a lot of money. I mean, I just saw Hampton, Virginia is like $12,000 signing bonus. To get to yes. work, get somebody there. Yes. So you know, so they're doing that part, but it's the how are we training once we get in the door? And, and unfortunately, a lot of our large city departments are struggling to find and retain people. Yes. Because let's be honest, in uh, in in a lot of communities where the police are vilified by affluent elites, because everybody, look, you know, I know when you sign up for policing, we all understand they're going to be those folks who don't yep. like you. And we all understand that. Yes. But what's really changed is that a lot of affluent elites, and those are disproportionately white folks, um, are so contempt, they're, they're so contemptuous of the police, and so angry and so shrill in what they say, that it's driving a lot of officers away from big agencies. You, you cannot work in a community where elected officials, where educated elites hold you in contempt. Nobody wants that. So you, know, you can imagine, for example, are, are there school teachers who are racist? Yes. Yeah. Are there doctors, lawyers, social workers who are racist? Absolutely. Do we need to find those folks and remove them from professions? Yes. But imagine being a school teacher and told every day, you're a terrible person. You're reinforcing legacies of systemic racism and inequality. You're a bad person even for being a teacher, working with teachers. Nobody would stand for that. The teachers would leave and go to communities where people say, you know what? We want you to be accountable. We want you to be transparent in what you do, but we respect the difficulties of the job. And we are here to work with you collaboratively to make sure you have what you need to succeed. And we're gonna to work together hand in glove, hand in hand to make that happen. Yeah. So as you, were you and I were talking before the recording, if we're going to get the best and brightest, if we're gonna get people to volunteer to serve, especially in some of our most troubled communities, Yes, officers, want, of course, they want to be paid and compensated, but they want to be honored and respected for the choice they've made to serve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, thanks for bringing it up, because we did talk about, about, for me, the conversation that I'm trying to do for you in 5.0 and some of the parts is that how we get Black bodies to join law enforcement. And I was talking to a friend of mine, I was like, we, you know, law enforcement does everything that they can do as far as going to high schools, HBCU campuses and all that. But that's that's a cultural change for us as a black generation, generational and all that kind of stuff. And, and until we, like you said, until the black family says, yeah, I'd be proud of you went to be a police officer. You know, until that stuff starts to happen, we're just not gonna do that. And, and I just feel like we gotta be at the, you know, you get the, well, why don't I have any black sergeants? Well, first I gotta have black police officers. So y'all, you know, you gotta be in a room. You can't just automatically spit that out and then don't put in the application. So that that just doesn't work like that. So for me, it's just trying to figure out how do we do that as a culture uh, to, to change that. And you're absolutely right. We gotta, you know, you're not gonna vilify someone because, and yes, you know, my knee was, wasn't on George Floyd's neck, you know, that officer was, you know, so, 
you're right. I mean, because I, I don't like dentists, and that was because of the horrific problems I had when I was little, you know. Um, but doesn't mean I don't hate all dentists. I realize I got to use them for some reason. So, so well, you know, and you and your BJ, you hit on a really important point. Again, this is something we talk about in our training. Let's talk about your example, the dentist. You had bad experiences as a child with a dentist, but if if you told somebody, man, that dentist was terrible. <laughs> Someone's not going to go attack and shoot a dentist on the other side of the country because BJ told someone she had a bad experience. Right. In law enforcement, for better or for worse, people judge all of us by our actions. So, uh, and I want to say this loud and clear to community members listening to this. The only people who are more angry about the way some officers treat the community, someone like Derek Chauvin, the only people more angry than the community and activists are the officers ourselves. Yes. Who are heartbroken, not just because they're officers who dishonor the badge, dishonor everything we stand for, but but also because, frankly, when officers treat people in a, in a manner that is humiliating and degrading, it puts the crosshairs on the chest of every law enforcement officer serving this country. Yeah. And we know there's research on this. It's called displaced rage. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, we tell officers in all our trainings, your responsibility is to set conditions for the next officer's safety. And sometimes we have to use forces. Sometimes we have to arrest people. We all understand that. And police work is not a Disney movie. There's not always a happy ending. Yes. But even when we use force, even when we have to use deadly force, there are ways to, to do this that don't undermine community trust. We have to be honest. We have to be transparent. And when we make mistakes... We need to own up to it. We need to be forthright. Right. And when there's bad news, we need to get out there and, and share that with the community before someone gets out in front of that narrative for us. Yeah. We need to own our mistakes. And, and equally, we need to honor and understand our successes. Because most of the time, and I think this is where on, on both sides, you and I have talked about this before, there are too many folks in the community who magnify the danger they face from the police. And there are too many folks in the policing world who magnify they, the danger they face from the community. Uh, am I deeply troubled by trends in violence against police? Absolutely. Do we need to think seriously about officer safety and ambushes and anti-police sentiment? We need to think about it every day. And we also need to think about uh, the many troubling incidents we see around the country, these viral incidents disproportionately involving young men of color and the police. But we also need to celebrate success and understand um, we need to look past these sensational incidents and look at what happens in nearly all interactions. We're doing some research on this. We're doing a big project with the Dallas Police Department. I want to give a shout out to Dallas PD um, and to Chief Eddie Garcia for the amazing work Dallas is doing uh, to target violent offenders, to hold people accountable but at the same time to do it in a way that sustains and builds community trust that understands if you're gonna get violent offenders off the street, you need to build relationships. Mm -hmm. And you need to treat people in, in a manner that upholds their safety, the safety of, of the community, the safety of the officers, um, but also hold people accountable. And we're seeing a lot of body-worn camera footage where officers are doing an outstanding job of balancing trust building and safety. Just like going to the dentist or going to the doctor, Doctors and dentists sometimes have to inflict pain on people for the greater good of their health. And the police, sadly, sometimes people need tickets. Sometimes people have to go to jail. Sometimes people need force use against them. But none of those things should come packaged with humiliation. And you know, you, you serve a long time. You can take people to jail. You can use force. You can, you can do a lot of things to people that they don't like but you don't have to do it in a manner that harms their dignity. When, when you harm dignity, when you dishonor people, when you humiliate people, you've made an enemy for life. Mm -hmm. And beyond. And, you, mm -hmm. and beyond, yes, and beyond. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's about relationships. Uh, a couple of things that you said, but uh, you're right. Uh, you know, you're building relationships with folks. I think there's other part that people don't really understand about working in communities. And, and even when you take people to jail, and I don't know how different it is now, but most, you know, some of the folks I used to arrest, like, yeah, BJ, I know you got a warrant on me, I'll see you tomorrow. And they go to jail. 
I'll meet them down at, you know, is because you build relationships. And people probably don't even understand that. Well, you build a relationship with a guy who's breaking in somewhere. Yeah, I mean, you know, so he had a bad moment, he broke into somebody's house. I just need him to get this warrant taken care of. I, I don't want to put my hands on him. And if he wants to go down there and says, I'll be down there next Monday, I'll see you next Monday, boo. I'm okay with that. Yeah. And, and, and that goes a long way in relationships. But I also want to get the stuff that, you know, the work that I do, trying to get community members to really kind of come, you know, come up for a little while and go, I try, it's an individual decision. Officers, these officers in these viral things that you say, that is, that is an individual officer making that individual decision. And we can't keep applying that to that. And then, you know, as a community member, especially for the black and brown community, they don't believe in, they're gonna get any results from filing police violation of unprofessionalism. You know, they, they, they don't feel like they're being hurt. And I'm trying to tell them, yes, I need to know as an executive, I need to know, because I'm not out there when, they, when somebody's treating you unprofessional. Um, and just getting that, I don't know, I think you might have said something, but you made me think about what you, the work that you're doing and getting officers to understand, you know, the humility, leaving people with the dignity and, and, and respect. And what I'm trying to tell that folks know, and, and I'm also telling officers, you're the first, you're the first contact. Just like you just said, depending on how you interact with a person will, will give them an everlasting impression of law enforcement. You, not a deputy chief, not a chief, you have an impact on police reform in this country. I don't have that impact. And, and yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it starts on the ground. Um, I think also you and I have talked, uh, we didn't talk about it, but it was a discussion that we had. Some of the things that I also wanna talk about for the black community, we gotta own some of the stuff that we do. You know, if, you know, especially when it comes to little, just little minor stuff, especially juveniles and youth, and it's marijuana, I use marijuana because you know, I, I don't need you to tell your kids don't, don't run from the police for that. <laughs> Nobody cares. Nobody cared. And you probably at home, you, you probably, the parent got an edible stuck in your underwear drawer. So, you know, tell your kid to just eat that because it's, it's, it's okay. You mentioned some statistics and I just need to ask this 97 to 98%. There is no use of force or violence in action. That's difficult. Uh, I understand st statistics. I know that is valid. I try to put statistics in the room, Jonathan, but I just let you know, I know you know this, but I can't do that all the time in a black audience. They ain't hearing it. They don't give a shit. Right. But yeah, no, 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 hundred percent. Oh, I'm not you, saying you, you, you. I'm not saying that. That I'm okay with you telling. Me. I'm just letting folk audience understand. I understand black folks ain't interested in on in ninety eight percent because they're no. Like, and, and, and let me run with that. Let me run with that. Yeah, and, okay, and, go and, ahead. And and by the and and likewise in a lot of police audiences, if we tell officers, look, we understand there are officers who get hurt and killed every year. But it's not as bad as it was in the 60s and 70s. And guess what? And, and not every person is out to get you. Okay, you're not storming the beaches of Normandy. It's not World War II, all right? All right, follow some basic principles of officer safety. You're probably going to be okay. But a lot of cops say, oh, man, everybody's out to get me. No, they're not. They're not. Most people are not. And so, but we, yeah. but one of the things we talk about in T3, here's another kind of easy takeaway line. We always tell officers we train, see, even if you don't agree. Mm. See, even if you don't agree, and I remember one of the kind of the, one of the the eye openers. Remember during the Obama administration? Do you remember the um? There was a guy who jumped the fence at the White House and made it into the West Wing before he was shot by the yeah. Secret Service. Yes. And and there was a, a a black member of Congress, and, and I, I don't remember the name of the Congress person anymore. But this guy said the Secret Service didn't do as good a job because President Obama's black. Oh. And at first I thought to myself, Come yeah, on, really? but 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 then I thought to myself this member of Congress really believes that. Mm -hmm. That's what that's what's in his head and his heart. So yeah. we need to meet people where they are. And yeah. so for me, look, I could be the poster child for white privilege, right? I'm a white guy. I got a PhD. I'm over 40. I'm, I'm blessed to make enough money to, to eat well. I'm blessed to live in a nice neighborhood. And I don't want to be pulled over by the police. I'm an ex-cop. Right. I got the deck is stacked 100% in Jonathan Wender's favor. Right. But if I get pulled over, I still don't like it. Yeah. So if I'm a young black man 
living in a marginalized neighborhood where a lot of my friends, family, community members have had bad interactions. I've heard stories. Of course, I'm going to be more nervous than Jonathan Winter when I get pulled over. So the, the first thing we need to do as officers is recognize, just like a doctor, recognize people's pain, recognize where they're coming from. Because as 99.9% of officers, whoever we are, whatever our race, color, creed, whatever, we show up trying to do the right thing. But we're scared. The community member is scared. But we need to just take a step back and understand how people are feeling, what's going on in their heads and hearts, and meet them where they are. And this is something we're actually working on a project in, um, in Virginia Beach with us right now, paid, paid by the DOJ, around building officers' capacity for empathy. Getting officers, as we call it, to gear into other people, to find what we call the North Star in the other person's sky. And, you know, I remember years ago, um, I was a patrol sergeant. One of the officers working with me stopped a stolen car. And uh, a young black guy driving this car. And you have all these cops swarming around this car. Everybody's got their guns out. And my job as the leader on scene is to bring everything down. So I, I, I told this guy, I said, I just want you to listen to me. Just put your hands out the window, take a deep breath. We're going to tell you some things to do. Just follow our instructions. It's going to be okay. I got you. You're going to be all right. Sunny day. Keep your hands out the window. Just follow our instructions. Do everything solely, and it's going to be okay. Right? It's no different than going to the doctor and saying, hey, you know what, BJ, you got some cavities, and we're going to have to give you some Novocaine. We're going to drill your teeth, and it's not going to be fun, but work with me, and we're going to get through this together. And so a lot of what we're talking about here. It, I don't do these things because I have a PhD in, in, in social science. It's because I've learned from life experience how to interact with people. So right. yes, I think all things being equal, if, if, someone can, if someone looks at an officer and says, you know, you're black or you're a woman or you belong to whatever group of humanity, I feel like you can relate to me. Sometimes yes, sometimes no, right? Uh -huh. Because of course, the, it's not just a matter of hiring black officers or white officers or, or Latino officers or, or any other category, it's finding the right person. Because, you know, you can go to some folks who say, oh, you know, you're black, you understand me. Other people are going to say, oh, you know, you're, you're, you betrayed your race. How dare you do that? You're, you're not black, you're blue. Right. So it's about having the head and heart for service and understanding that officers need to have some humility and understand here, but for the grace of God, go I. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah, I mean, I really, God, I really like what you guys are doing uh, in Virginia Beach. That really is the, wow, that's, that's just the kind of stuff. I mean, it's, I, I don't know. I, I feel like we have just got to try, it's got to be a new way, a better way of training. And then, you know, the, the, the kids that are being hired today, I mean, they're more diverse and they're more inclusive. So they, they're, they're not probably going to be warming up to that type of BLET, paramilitary, I mean, I know you need it. I mean, I'm not saying, I mean, there's stuff you got to have, right? But there's more stuff right now with, that they need to have to help them. And um, I don't know what the age is, but hiring 19 and 20 year olds here in North Carolina, um, I mean, we're talking about, what, you know, what kind of emotional intelligence do you have? Uh, and now I have just given you a gun and power of federal and <laughs> state laws. I mean, sometimes that may not end well. So we got to figure out how to help them, like you said, show some empathy, show some heart. Yes. Exactly. Slow down, you know? And that, so to, and to get the best and brightest, the profession has to be seen as, as honorable, as, as a destination. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's really, it, it breaks my heart, and I'm sure you've had the same conversation with your colleagues in the policing world. It breaks my heart to hear so many police officers saying, I can't wait to get out of this profession. I would never want my kids to do this. Right. Yeah. You yeah. know, and, and when I see yeah. the people who are leaving, when I see officers who come from communities of color, who have PhDs, who have law degrees, they're, they are, they're the epitome of what the police world needs, but they're leaving because they're, they're heartbroken. Mm -hmm. And so we, we have to get to a point where we're having an honest dialogue in the policing profession and with communities about where we can do a better job, but also about how to get the community on our side. Um, and 
you know, there, there are better and worse ways to do this. It is. Let me ask you a question because you just rattle off, you know, some of the your folks are leaving with degrees and stuff. And I'm kind of on the fence as far as education. Uh, there is the, I want to like to know your, your, there's a theory that you need to have a four year degree to be a police officer. And I'm really not feeling that at all. Um, because, you know, the conversation we had before we started was for me trying to work, trying to figure out how to get black and brown bodies and primarily black bodies. I mean, there, there's, there's an agenda for me to, to, to do that. And I'll be very specific about that. Um, because the history of, we all know the history of law enforcement. We know, you know, how most white males may have gotten into middle class. They came through law enforcement because they could afford to itch their way up. And then immigrants, you know, that's how they, a lot of them joined law enforcement and middle class and were able to pay for education. So for me, it's, it's very, very on that level for people who are in these communities who may not see another way uh, or the kid that goes, you know what, I really don't want to flip any more burgers, but I might go out here and do this on the street. But yet you won't look at law enforcement who could get you that education and a degree or help you start your entrepreneurship. So kind of tell to me a little bit about how you feel about the type of education you need to have just to get in the door. So that so so this this is a really important question, uh, and there as you know historically there there has been a debate around what professionalizing policing looks like a debate that goes back to the, the 30s and 40s and the work of people like August Vollmer, uh, and for years there's been an effort to make policing um, a profession in the white collar sense, right like um, like medicine or law, uh, or at least to make it a gray collar profession. So first of all, um, not all college degrees are created equally. And I am less interested in college degrees that are basically vocational training, that are basically teaching people what they're going to learn in the academy. And this is no, no disrespect to any degree that anybody's gotten, but I, I often tell police departments and I tell potential officers, don't go into debt study in college, which you're going to learn in the academy or in-service training. If you're taking <laughs> classes on, if you're, if you're taking classes right. on criminal law and dusting for fingerprints and how to process crime scenes, you're wasting your time and money. Right. I, want, like that. <laughs> I, I want people in policing who are educated, open-minded, tolerant problem solvers. It's not that I want someone with a transcript full of policing classes. I, and so a, at its best, a college education predisposes people to be better critical thinkers, to be more ethically imaginative, uh, to be problem solvers, to be consensus builders. And we, we need people like that in policing. Now, I agree with you. We, we need to have multiple paths to policing. If someone has a lot of life experience and job experience and personal stability, you know, I, I know some officers with PhDs who are horrible cops. And I know officers with a high school diploma who are awesome. Yeah. So do we have, need to have multiple avenues to the profession? Yes, we do. Yeah. But whatever, wherever those avenues converge, the standards need to be high. Um, we need to do a better job of, of identifying and selecting people who are uh, adaptive problem solvers with a heart for service. Right. right. And, and the work that you guys are doing, um, does it, does it kind of, if I'm the guy sitting in your class and I, I'm not exactly the nicest guy, are you, be, or will you be able to pull that out of me? Will I walk out of your class being more empathetic or more, or more, uh, trust not trusting but will, will i begin to see more after i leave your class so you're asking uh, you're asking a really important a question which comes down to the effectiveness of training um i i've been training and educating people since i did a guest lecture on house plants for my brother's first grade class back in the day <laughs> i love training people i love educating people i love helping people learn um but I don't have any illusions or fantasies that 
a day in the classroom with me or my colleagues is going to transform someone. And I think in, in the police world, everybody wants the, everyone wants something easy. There's no easy path to excellence. In yeah. any profession, developing excellence takes a lot of time and a lot of sacrifice and a lot of sweat. And chiefs say, well, can you, and, and this is a problem with a lot of police reform. Something bad happens and we say, well, I want a de-escalation class. I want implicit bias class. I want to, and let's put, let's put everybody in a room for eight hours and we're going to hope that the clouds part and the angels trumpet. It doesn't work. That way. <laughs> right. It doesn't work that way. And so I, and you know, it's like someone who says, well, uh, it's new year's day. I, I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to be fit. I'm going to work. This is my one day a year to work out. It's not going to work. So Will that officer who's skeptical come away thinking differently? I think so. I think we've gotten some people because part of what we try to do, and, you're, you're, and this is getting at something really important, BJ. Um, you know from the early days of community policing, the early model of community policing said, hey, we're going to talk to the pastor, the store owner, the yeah. high school principal, little league coach, and we're going to get them on side and we're going to work with them. And that's easy because those people already like you. Right. They already support you. Yeah. So the question is, how do you get people who don't like and trust the police on side? Yeah. How, and, and same thing and same thing in training. Mm -hmm. It's the, the guy who loves training, who's sitting in the front row, who's, hey, this is cool. I'm, I'm not worried about him. The right. guy sitting in the back room, arms folded, cursing under his breath. That's yep. the guy you went over. That's the guy. And, yeah. and though, so in we work to trust has to be built most where it is weakest. And that's true in any, and you, you know, you know, you're married, I'm married. We took right in every marriage has a strong points of weak points. And I think, you know, I'm married to a therapist. So I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, kind of go for the therapy. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> well, so, you know, in, in any human relationship, if we fail to identify problems early and work to continuously address them, we're setting up ourselves for failure. Right. And so, and it's amazing. You, you see so many times people, they've been married X amount of time. Well, I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. How come? What have you been talking about? Right. And so this is the difference between honest relationship building and what I call Hallmark card relationships. Mm. Right. It's, it's all well and good. You can get your loved one, your husband, wife, you can get people flowers and cards to celebrate the holidays. But if you're not being for real, if you're not listening patiently in moments of difficulty, you're not going to get where you need to go. And you know one of one of um one of my uh, leadership instructors I most admire and uh, uh, retired chief uh, Kenneth Miller, uh, was a first African American captain of Virginia Beach, went on to be the uh, chief in Petersburg, Virginia, an amazing charismatic uh, leadership instructor, and uh, he, he's he's the person who taught me that in in a lot of communities, people want to be heard, people don't want. A, they don't want some cute lip sync video or some coffee with a cop or you know hot dog stand at the fair. That's all nice, but that's Hallmark card policing. People want you to talk with them and sit down with them. They want you to go to their church, to their barbershop, to their party, to the corner where no one wants to stand and talk and be real and listen. Just like a human relationship, you know. Yeah. You have to listen and care with an open head and an open heart. And it is really, really hard. If it was easy, I would be unemployed. Yeah, I mean, and I appreciate that story. I, oh man, he sounds like my kind of guy uh, because you're absolutely right. It, it really is more than just sitting on porches. I mean, I know the work that I used to do. That's the part, that's where I got my juice from. I mean, I, I you know, paperwork and all that was annoying. But going out and talking in the community, I got assigned as a district commander. My first assignment, I met a woman. We actually, I met her. I had just gotten assigned to the district and they had a vigil, homicide vigil. And we were standing in the church where her son had been killed several years earlier. And, and she was like, the, her, they lived like two blocks away from her. She, she still lives in that community. So she drives by that intersection every day. And her son was killed and fell into that church parking lot. And when I got there, she was a community leader. And that lady gave me a side eye and I was like, oh, here we go. And she and I are best friends today, you yeah. know, because it, it, it was accountability, listening, you know, being there, being responsible. You know, if I said I was going to do something, 
I mean, it's just like any other relationship. You got to put in the work. You got to put the work. Exactly. In. Yeah. And you, and you have to put in the work where it's most needed. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You, you have to, and you, so it's, it's not just about talking and same thing with chiefs. I tell chiefs, don't just talk to your yes men, your yes women, yeah. talk to the skeptics, talk to the people who are not in your corner. Mm-hmm. And this is what you have to do in the community. You have to go out and build relationships because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, where are police spending most of their time? If we're, if we're touching society, we're already hurt. This means we need to go to our poor marginalized neighborhoods, mm-hmm. which have disproportionately high crime, which yeah. are often, which is often where a lot, a lot of people of color live. Yeah. And you have to engage with folks and hear them mm-hmm. with, with an open ear and an open heart and an open mind. And and so part of this, and and I don't and I don't necessarily think you know, and you and you can be any race, color, creed, and do that. Yeah. Like I, yeah. So um, yeah. Amen, Jonathan. I mean, that, you you the boss on that one because that that that's it all day long. And I and because I was listening to you said something about uh, earlier about how you know the elites, you know, kind of screaming at police officers and and, and vilifying them. I've been going to this program on the weekends and it's mainly of um, black and brown in the room, but it's mainly white uh, folks. It's, 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 they're doing a, how, an alternative way to policing is what the conversation is about, right? And someone said, BJ, you might want to sit in. And I did, because I kind of want to hear what was going on. And I think what was shocking, and I don't know why, but it was white women and white men were just like, they don't like the police now. <laughs> and I'm going, wait a minute, y'all sound like black folk in my head. Uh, and I think I was kind of taken aback because their interaction with them is, I had one lady say, well, you know, I've had really good relationship but with police officers back then, but now I don't like them. Yep. And it was just, uh, uh, and so now I'm listening for all of that because now it just reminds me, this is, it's, you know, while I'm obviously thinking black, which is narrow, I mean, I, I know folks, but, just to hear in this particular group that I'm in, who are basically people talking about peace, and they're saying we don't like the police, and it. Well, yeah. you, you're well. You're hitting on something really important, and so I kind of, I sort of have this half baked joke where I say, you know, what, what do, uh, what, what a, what is a poor black guy living in inner city housing and the rich white guy in, in a super rich neighborhood have in common, neither one would open the door for a social worker who showed up to a domestic violence call instead of an officer, right? Because really, because that's, and so I think we sometimes, does a cop need to go to every, in, does a cop need to go to every call? No. No, no. Are there problems that should be solved by other people? And look, and you know, you're a cop. Yeah. Officers don't want to deal with the kid who's not cleaning up her room or no. the homeless person. Yeah. Wait, but but we we are the default mechanism. Yes, we're the default. De- so, yes. but I think we have to be honest. American society, and I don't care if you're talking about white people, black people, people of, of any race, color, or creed. Americans value their independence and freedom. Americans don't like being told what to do. No one likes being told what to do. But Americans, we have a very very strong streak of individualism, and this is kind of back to what Agen Bender said. Can you imagine a you know, a social worker or a caseworker knocking on a door, and I don't care if it's a rich neighborhood or a poor neighborhood, there's, the, there's a fight, there's a domestic violence call, there are various kinds of things, and hey, I'm here to solve a problem. And it's not going to happen. So we have to be <laughs> honest that sometimes we need people who have that capacity to use what Egan Bittner called non-negotiable coercive force. These are situations where, as Bittner put it, we call the cops. And one of the things that's interesting when we, a lot of the, the high profile instances we see, uh, we don't take a step back and realize, this is, we're seeing this in our work in Dallas, many, many calls for service across America come from poor people of color who are asking the police to help solve a problem that they can't solve themselves. So I think we have to take a, a broader view of the narrative. It's not just, it's not that the cops are driving around looking for people to pick on. It's often that the police are summoned to a situation, often in a marginalized community, and, and they're being asked and trusted to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. When you think about those dynamics, this really gets to what you're talking about, where how do we, how do we empower the community to do their best in their interactions with the police? Yeah. Yeah, that's why, you know, I, 
like I said, you you and uh, Alternative Violence Project uh, as well as it's on my website is because you two, both of you guys have the same thing. And, and I can never pronounce the word, but experiential uh, training. I mean, it's it's all about getting in there and, and, and filling it out instead of just, you know, textbooks or whatever. And that's kind of, you know, you guys get to the core of it. Community AVP for me does the teaching the community how to communicate, resolve problems and stuff. And then we don't have to call the police. And then if we do have to call the police, the work that you do is about integrity and humanity and trust and all that. So the, for me, both of those things go hand in hand. So well, and, and what I what I like about the work that you do, you know, and I and I think you and I, I think our very first conversation, I I sometimes push back on these problems. I'll often have cops say, well, you know. We have a hard job and, and kids should learn how to talk to police respect and, and kids should be educated to do these things. And so I agree, right? It, it, yes, kids should be polite and respectful and whatever whatever people's skin color, whatever their background, yes, people should be taught at home how to interact with the public and with strangers. But I tell these officers, you raised your right hand, you volunteered, you signed up, you signed up to work in a profession where you were dealing with people in crisis who disproportionately live in places where there's a lot of pain and a lot of suffering and a lot of mistrust for the police. If that's not what you want to do, then go find another job. But <laughs> but but you can't put back on the. So I agree. People should learn manners. People should learn respect. But guess what? The people you're going to be interacting with didn't learn these things, or you wouldn't be there in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I think the policing profession needs to own its responsibility to treat people safely and in a dignified, lawful manner. And every community in America, rich, poor, people need to raise their kids with basic standards of decency, basic manners. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. Wow, this has been a really good conversation. Thank you very much for um, for saying yes again. And, and I, I'm looking forward to it. Kenson said that, you know, if they make if they make the move, I might be to sit in and, and watch the training. So I'm kind of hoping, <laughs> I'm kind of like keep nudging them toward that. So uh, I look forward to that. Um, hopefully that'll work out. So anyway, thank you again for coming. Is there anything kind of last parting words you want to give us before you get out? No, here? not all. No, no, BJ, thank you. Thank you for, uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity. I, you know, I, I always enjoy talking with you and uh, I encourage folks who, uh, who hear this conversation to to reach out to you to me, um, you know, and and let's let's work across differences to to build safer communities where human dignity uh, is the cornerstone of everything that we do. Um, let's you know, I, I like ending conversations on a, on on a note of hope, and um, I think there's you know, you and I more than anything else we share a vision that comes down to hope and a belief that the world can be a better place. So um, thank you for the work that you do. And I'm looking forward to talking again. Yeah, thank you. And definitely thanks for that. For those of you listening on my website, uh, he's, uh, his uh, contact is on my on, on the website on a resource uh, because I'm, I, mean, I endorse what he's doing. So you can find some information and once we, uh, and then his, uh, this will be there for anybody that wants to share this link to the podcast uh, will be on that as well, uh, as well as the other places will be. But if you read that, it'll be there as well too. So Thanks again, Jonathan, and to everybody out there. Thanks for always supporting us and uh, hope things are going well. And as always, stay well, stay safe, peace.